0: Glad to see you all here this morning to worship the Lord. And you're trying to beat the heat. Boy, it has been hot this past weekend, hasn't it? And uh, we're all trying to stay cool. Praise the Lord for air-conditioned church auditoriums. I hope that's not the only reason you're here today, but it's, it's nice to have an air-conditioned church, that's for sure. You can take your Bible and open up to uh, the Gospel of Mark in chapter 6. While you're finding the place, I want to just make a couple of statements. First of all, I want to say that I am truly grateful and honored once again to be asked by Pastor Matthew to fill the pulpit while he's away on vacation. For me, it's just a great privilege to do that. And so uh, I just want to say thank you for that. I know what some of you are thinking right now. Oh no, not the old guy. <laughs> well, I'm not as old as I look, but at any rate, I've learned one thing in this whole thing of coping with growing older and just dealing with the aging process. You got to have a sense of humor about it, right? I mean, you just got to kind of go with it. And uh, some people don't handle aging well at all. I mean, some of our kids that when they turn 40, they act like it's the end of the world. Yeah, <clears throat> but you know, so, uh, and, and some folks I tell you they get up to be around my age, and it just uh, you know they become bitter and angry and grumpy and mean, and you, just, you know, you just uh, you, you just got to develop a sense of humor. The best way to to deal with aging is just to have a sense of humor and, and laugh about it. A couple of years ago, Nancy and I attended a a Bible conference in Scroon Lake, New York, uh, the Word of Life Bible Camp up there. And Jay Vernon McGee, who's a speaker from years ago, he was the, he was the speaker and he, he shared this whole thing of how to know when you're getting older. And I want to share that with you, just a little touch of humor to begin with. Ten ways to know you're getting older. Number one, you know you're getting older when you sit in a rocking chair, but you can't get it going. You know you're getting older when you sink your teeth into a juicy steak and they stay there. You know you're getting older when you look forward to a dull evening. You know you're getting older when you turn out the lights for economic rather than romantic reasons. You know you're getting older when your knees buckle but your belt won't. You know you're getting older when your back goes out more than you do. You know you're getting older when you're asleep and others worry that you're dead. <laughs> oh my. You know you're getting older when the gleam in your eyes is from the sun hitting your bifocals. You know you're getting older when almost everything hurts and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. <laughs> And finally, you know you're getting older when you help a little old gray haired lady across the street and she's your wife. So. <laughs> oh boy, just out of curiosity, since we all laughed about that, how many are willing to admit they're 65 or up? Raise your hand, be proud of it, own it. Okay, several of you. Uh, good for you. At our age, it's just great to be alive every morning, isn't it? They say that the one sign you're getting older is the first thing you check is the obituaries, and then you're so happy when your name isn't in it. So, well, enough of that silliness. We're going to look at um, we're going to look at uh, a passage of Scripture this morning from the Gospel of Mark, and chapter six, and it is a powerful passage. And so, um, I invite you to turn to it if you haven't already, or you can just watch the words uh, on the screen, out of respect for the Word of God. Let's all stand together, shall we? And this is uh, Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, beginning at verse 45, down through verse 52. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. Well, he sent the multitude away, and when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when the evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But, he, but immediately he talked with them and said to them, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, teach us today from your word. I pray that the Holy Spirit would take the word of God and just really uh, impress it upon our hearts today. Help us to glean some real good, practical lessons from this passage of the word of God. Help us to know a little bit, Lord, about how to cope with the storms of life when they come how to make it through the storms of life. All of us are subject to those. I just pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. And when we walk out of this place this morning, may we all say, it has been good to be in the house of the Lord. Lord, just teach us right now in these next few moments. And we'll thank you for it in advance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is a powerful and practical passage of Scripture. It describes the experience of the disciples in the storm and the lessons that they learned as they, in the process of passing uh, through it. I've entitled this sermon, How to Make It Through the Storms of Life. How to Make It Through the Storms of Life. There are times in life when we all feel as though God has forsaken us and forgotten us. We feel like the disciples must have felt that we're drowning beneath an overwhelming flood of problems, whatever they might be. Are you going through a storm right now? Now, I'm not talking so much about physical storms like hurricanes and tornadoes and snowstorms. Uh, Nancy and I, we know a little bit about snowstorms. My last 18 years of pastoral ministry was located uh, 20 miles east of Buffalo, New York. So we know a thing or two about snowstorms, believe me. But we've all seen the pictures on television, haven't we? Tornadoes that go through a town and just rip everything apart and people standing there uh, amidst the the shambles of what used to be their home and all their possessions, and it's all gone. And it's such a sad scene to see the devastating effects of a storm. Or I think of individuals like those down in Louisiana just this past week that went through a hurricane. And uh, just the awesome devastation that occurs when people have to uh, lose all of their earthly possessions because of some storm. And even the the fear of loss of life that comes from often from these kinds of storms. But this morning, I'm not talking so much about physical storms related to the weather. Rather, I'm things that, events that come into our lives that are just devastating. They're just so difficult to deal with. And there's a number of common storms that come to my mind that we're all subject to. Let me list four of them for you. First of all, some of you may be going through a marital storm. Your marriage is on shaky ground. There's no peace in your home. And while your physical house may be beautiful and strong and still standing, I want to tell you, the marriage that's inside that home is is about ready to crumble. It's just ready to fall apart. So I may be speaking to some folks today that May be going through a marital storm. You know, one thing I've learned about being a pastor for 44 years. Unfortunately, before people will ever come into my office for marriage counseling, they let things go f- so long. They they neglect getting help for so long that by the time they come and ask for help, so much. Awful hurt, I mean deep hurt, has already occurred. And the effects of that storm in that marriage relationship are just awful. Uh, Secondly, some people may be going through a mental storm. And by that I mean a time of depression. And all of us in life are subject to I don't care how spiritual you are or think you are. There are times where we're vulnerable to depression. If Elijah, the prophet, who called down fire from heaven on the mountaintop, could in the very next chapter of 1 Kings, in cha- that's chapter 18. Chapter 19, he's sitting under a juniper tree requesting to die. He's so depressed. And perhaps there's some here that you're going through something in your life right now, and you can hardly get out of bed in the morning. I mean, you can, you can hardly face another day because depression has taken such a grip in your heart and in your life. I'll tell you, it's an awful thing. Or maybe you're not going through depression, but you just are subject to anxiety and worry. Perhaps you have grown children that are not walking with the Lord. You're just so burdened for your family and there's, there's not good relationships going on in your family right now and I want to tell you that hurts you lie awake in your bed at night and you're lying there and thinking what's wrong why, why are these relationships so fragile right now So you may be dealing with a mental type of storm. Thirdly, some of you may be going through what I call a monetary storm. What do I mean by that? Well, a financial. Maybe you're on the verge of losing your job. Or maybe you have a job, but it doesn't seem like you're pulling in enough money, you know, to pay those bills. And you feel like sometimes you're drowning in a sea of debt. Your credit cards are maxed out and you're, you don't even know how you're going to get along the next week or the next month because the financial pressure right now in your home and on your life is just terrible and you think, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. So there's monetary, and then number four, some of you may be going through what I call a medical storm, a medical storm. Perhaps you've been diagnosed with cancer or or an incurable uh, chronic disease that's just taking its toll on you. That's what my wife is dealing with right now. My dear wife, I don't know how she does it. She is now pretty much confined to a wheelchair and many of you have seen her come in and out with me. A lot of you probably have thought to yourself, what exactly is wrong with Nancy? Why is she confined to a wheelchair? What what is medically her problem? We, We had so many people in our former church up there in upstate New York that kept asking her that that one day she decided to write down her testimony. And so I'm going to read that for you. I, she wouldn't come up here and read it, so I'll read it for you, okay? And so let me just share this. This is personally, okay, personally for our family right now, this is our storm, okay? Just so you know, This is our storm. I have struggled with a progressive muscle disease for the past 20 years. Because the word disability conjures up such negative feelings in me, I've been very reluctant to talk about the reality that I have a disability. I don't want to be defined by my limitations. In my silence, I have failed to share how God sustains and encourages me. Recently, I've been prompted to put my thoughts on paper. My hope is that this may be an encouragement to others struggling along their way. We all carry burdens and need to be reminded of God's power to carry them for us. My, quote, walk with muscular dystrophy began later in life, for which I am extremely thankful. God so graciously allowed me to marry a wonderful man. That's me. (laughs) Raise six beautiful children and become a registered nurse before I was having troubling symptoms. I enjoyed a wonderful time working as a labor and delivery nurse. At times, as I was driving to work, I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm getting paid for doing something I love to do. How many people can say that? I'm so grateful I was able to hold my little children, wrap my arms around them, and enjoy a great young adult life before I was affected. Looking back, I see small signs that foreshadowed perhaps things were not quite right. I often fell onto and off the school bus. I was gifted at tripping upstairs. Many a time I found myself not so gracefully sprawled across a set of bleachers. Phys Ed was definitely not my thing. I remember my gym teacher yelling, Hey, Nancy, get the lead out. In my mind, I felt I was moving at lightning speed. In gym, I was amazed that people could actually get the basketball all the way up to the hoop. My 20s were in an era when running was not an activity that was cool. I really wasn't concerned that it seemed a difficult thing to do. I knew something was not right when I became extremely short of breath walking up a small incline, and it was becoming difficult to carry something in front of me. That is a significant concern when your job consists of safely carrying newborns after their delivery. Another very bothersome concern was a weakness in my back. I thought that six pregnancies and years of working as a nurse were catching up with this old gal. My symptoms were somewhat difficult to articulate. Something was definitely wrong and getting worse. It took a minimum of five years to get a diagnosis. I was seen locally by several neurologists. I was also seen two times at Cleveland Clinic and two times at Johns Hopkins with no firm diagnosis. The hardest part was that I was beginning to feel like I was treated as a neurotic middle-aged woman. The neurology department at NIH, National Institute of Health, took me on as a challenge I remember the relief I felt when one doctor said we will find out what is wrong as they examined me my husband and I heard them saying something about scapular winging and using the initials FSH several times I was actually relieved when the genetic blood test came back and confirmed the diagnosis of fascio-scapular-humeral-muscular dystrophy. Having said that, I really didn't understand the devastating reality of this disease. I had been on a quest to find a pill that would cure me, not a diagnosis that would drastically alter my life. As a Christian, I sometimes struggle because I cannot say I'm thankful for this trial. I hear people giving wonderful testimonies about how they wouldn't trade their cancer or tragic injury because of how it helped them to have a closer walk with God. I would have preferred an easier road to learn about God's amazing grace. I have to admit, I would trade this disease for an easier option if I had the choice. As this muscle-wasting disease marches on, I choose to hold on to the truth of God's goodness and sufficiency. I grieve over the losses this disease has caused. It is difficult to walk with your head held high when you can neither walk or hold your head up well. I am sad I can no longer work as a registered nurse. I am sad that I will never walk hand in hand with my husband on a sandy beach. I am sad I will never dance. I never could, but now it seems especially appealing. (laughs) I am sad I will never wear high heels again. Well I guess I could wear stilettos in my power chair. I will definitely be buried in a pair of gaudy red heels. I am sad I can't carry my grandchildren or pick them up. I grieve thinking about the places I will never go with my husband or things I will never do because of the limitations my body has imposed on me. With muscular dystrophy, there is a constant grieving process. As you adjust to one loss, another one most likely shows up. My greatest fear is that I will have to see my children or grandchildren walk this path. One of the hardest parts about this is this is a genetically transferred disease. In short, my, quote, walk with muscular dystrophy has not been a walk in the park. Although this has been and will continue to be a difficult journey... I am thankful for the assurance of God's presence and provision. The Bible verse in 2 Corinthians twelve nine, where God says, My grace is sufficient for thee, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. That is my anchor. I am thankful for my husband, who meant both for better or worse, and in sickness and in health. When you say those words as a young person at a flower-filled wedding altar, you're not really envisioning how that may become a reality someday. I'm thankful for my children and children by marriage who love me and accept my limitations. I'm thankful for my grandchildren who think my scooter and my power chair are cool. I'm thankful to have mobility devices to allow me to live my life as fully as possible. I'm thankful for handicapped parking. I'm thankful that my body is the problem and not my mind. I am still me. Most of all, I'm thankful for Jesus Christ rescuing me from sin and giving me a sure hope of heaven. Because there I will run and jump like crazy just because I can. All God's people said. I've read that many times and it's still hard to read. Whatever you're dealing with this morning, dear friend, it may not be muscular dystrophy, but whatever you're dealing with, listen carefully. God doesn't bring storms into our lives to make us bitter, but to make us better. If you don't get anything else out of this sermon today, I want you to mark that down. God doesn't bring storms into our lives to make us bitter, but to make us better. These storms are designed by God not to destroy us, but to deepen us and our trust in God, our faith in him. See, dear friends, God's not mean or cruel. God is a loving God who says to us all things, Work together for good to them that love God. Amen? He doesn't say good things work together for good. We all all would agree with that. He says all things work together for good to them who are the called according to his purpose. So we go through storms, don't we? Storms of different types. What we're dealing with in our home may not be what you're dealing with at all. But when you find yourself in the midst of one of these storms of life, I want you to just remember five things. So let's go through those. What five things can we learn from today's text to help us to make it through the storms of life. Number one, first thing to remember, he sent me here. He sent me here. Look how the text begins in verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat And go before him to the other side. He made the disciples get in the boat. I get the impression, by the way, one translation says he constrained them. I get the impression that they were kind of reluctant to leave the Lord. They didn't want to really go on ahead of him. He said, go on ahead. I'll catch up with you later. Uh, I'm going to send the rest of the multitude away and minister to them. And I'll, I'll catch up with you on the other side. He made them, the scripture says, get into the boat. That's pretty remarkable. In other words, Jesus sent the disciples out to sea knowing full well that he was sending them straight in the storm. You know how he knew that? Because he made the storm. He made it and he sent his disciples deliberately into it. This storm was no accident. God planned it for a purpose. He was trying to teach his disciples a very valuable lesson. Now, you might say, when you're in the middle of a storm, I don't want to be here. Well, I have news. From a human perspective, I don't want to be here either. (laughs) Uh, Nobody likes storms. I don't want to be in the storm in the middle of the lake late at night with a boat about to capsize. But once we get a hold of the concept, listen carefully, once we understand the principle that he sent me here, we begin to appreciate that there's a greater purpose, a divine sovereign purpose Purpose in this thing. We may not like what's happening in our life. We may not understand what's going on in our life right now. But once we understand this concept that God has designed all things for our good, to teach us, to help us grow, to uh, deepen our dependence upon him. It changes our whole perspective. He sent me here. What an amazing concept that is. There's a beautiful Old Testament example of this principle, and it's found in the book of Exodus. Chapter 14 and verse 2. This is the, let me give you the context. Pharaoh had finally, after 10 plagues, he finally consented to let the Israelites go. You know the story. Moses had led them out of Egypt. They were on their way toward the Red Sea. Pharaoh then has a change of heart and a change of mind. He starts pursuing after Israel. And in Exodus fourteen two, we have this verse. God said, speak to the children of Israel that they turn. I want you to circle the word turn. It's like, okay, the whole group is going this way. Going, whoa, whoa, whoa. He says, turn. I want you to turn right here and go this way. That they turn, it says, and camp before Pi-Hiroth between Migdal and the sea. God led them into a very spot where there was a mountain on this side, a mountain on this side, a sea in front of them, God actually led Israel to a place where they would be trapped. Can you believe that? As a matter of fact, if you keep reading in Exodus 14, the scripture says, Pharaoh will think to himself, aha, they're trapped. Now you say, why would God do that? Why in the world would God tell the congregation of Israel to go into a canyon area where the sea is in front of them, mountains on the side, and the Egyptian army is now barreling down from behind them? Let me ask you, Is there ever been a time in your life where you felt like you were trapped, that there was no way out? You feel like, God... God, there's no way out of this. There's no way out of this. But we know, as we keep reading, that the Lord designed that very spot. God put them in a spot, listen, where their only hope was God. Their only hope was God. See, that's where God wanted them. So point number one, when you find yourself in the storms of life, you need to say with all assurance, God, you sent me here. You led me to this very spot. Some of you men may be in a job that you hate. I mean, you can't stand it. Your boss is, well, you don't have a kind word for him. And you wonder why in the world. You know what? You've got to be able to say, God put me here. I don't know why. I'm not very happy about it, that's for sure. But God must have a purpose in this. God put me right here. Amen? Number two. First of all, he sent me here. Number two, he's praying for me. This is such an encouraging thing. As the disciples are out there on the sea and the storm begins, and they're rowing for all they're worth, I mean, they're struggling. Can you get the picture in your mind? What's Jesus doing? He's up on the mountain overlooking the lake, and he's praying Now, you might say, what's he praying about? Well, I think it's kind of obvious, don't you? If Jesus made the storm, and if Jesus sent the disciples into the storm, if Jesus had a purpose in this whole thing, what in the world do you think he's praying about? He's praying for them, and he's praying specifically that they would learn the lesson of faith and trust that they need to have it's so encouraging is praying for me he's my intercessor he's interceding for me far too often when we pray we ask god to take the storm away you know that's how we pray isn't it god get me out of this mess God, take the storm away. You know what? If God designed the storm to teach us a lesson, he's not going to take the storm away until we learn the lesson. Why would God do that? Why would God take the storm away until we've learned the lesson that he wants us to learn? A mature Christian doesn't pray, take the storm away. A mature Christian prays this way, God, use this storm to make me depend on you and trust you with my whole heart that's how we need to pray there's a good example of how Jesus prays for individuals remember the story of Peter this is in Luke chapter 22 and Jesus had just predicted that Peter was going to deny the Lord remember that Peter said, I'll never deny you, Lord. I never will. Jesus, Peter, I'm telling you, you're going to deny me three times. But when Jesus predicted that, he also said this. And you'll find this in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 31. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I, listen to this, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Well, you know, nothing's more encouraging to me than the wonderful thought that Jesus is praying for me. He's praying for me and what I'm going through. Number three, he sent me here. He's praying for me. Number three, he sees my need. Verse 48 says, he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. He saw them straining at rowing. Listen, friends, don't think God is so far away from us that he doesn't see what is going on in our lives. The text says he saw them. Now, we kind of read right over that. It doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but it's pretty amazing. It's the middle of the night. And they're miles away. He's up on a mountain. They're out in the in the middle of a lake in a storm. It says the fourth watch of the night. In the Roman first century, they would divide the night sentry shifts into four shifts, and you the four three-hour shifts. Six to nine was the first shift, first watch. Uh, nine to twelve. And then there was the 12 to 3, that's the third watch. The fourth watch of the night is 3 a.m. to 6. Assuming that these disciples get into the boat somewhere late evening, maybe 9, 9.30 at night in the evening hours, and Jesus sends them across the lake, a lot of time has gone by. We're talking probably 6 to 7 hours, and it's pitch dark. And and it says, he saw them. I am encouraged that nothing, listen carefully, nothing touches my life that God doesn't see. Isn't that great? Nothing touches my life but that God doesn't see. God's not so far away from you that he doesn't know what's going on. He is aware of your every circumstance, your every need. Take heart, this dear discouraged child of God. He sees your need. One of the greatest statements ever made in the Bible about the attributes of God was made by Hagar. Remember her? She was the bondwoman that served Sarah. There's Abraham and Sarah and there was the bondwoman. Her name was Hagar. And because of a conflict, Sarah throws her out, casts her out into the desert. Hagar finds herself out there alone in the desert And then God comes to her and speaks to her comforting words. He says, listen, I want you to go back and submit yourself to Sarah again. Just just go back. It'll be okay. I promise you, just go back and put yourself in submission to her. And Hagar makes this tremendous statement. You'll find it in Genesis 16, verse 13. It says, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. You are the God who sees. In Hebrew, that name for God is Jehovah Roy, R-O-I. Jehovah, the God who sees. You say, does anybody know what I'm going through or even care? And I say... God knows, and God cares, and God sees. He sent me here. He's praying for me. He sees my need. Number four, are you ready for this? Number four, he will come to me. Well, that's good news. If you're out in the middle of the lake and you're about ready to drown, it's pretty good news that he's going to come to you. The Lord is committed to caring for us in the storms of life. He's not going to let the disciples drown. He isn't going to let you drown under the billowing waves of whatever your problem is either. Whenever you feel like God has forsaken or forgotten you, you're wrong. He has promised to never leave us or forsake us, Hebrews thirteen five. And just as Jesus came to the three Hebrew children, remember, in the midst of the fiery furnace, he will come to you. I love that passage, by the way, in Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar says, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? Behold, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire. And the form of the fourth man is like the Son of God. Jesus came to them in their time of need. Now you have to admit, it's pretty amazing the way Jesus comes to them. And that's the miracle of Mark chapter 6, isn't it? Walking on the water. The way he comes to them is just nothing short of a divine miracle that defied all the laws of gravity. But there's an interesting thing that happens right now. Before Jesus gets into the boat, well, first of all, they cry out. They think it's a ghost because it's dark out, and all they see is the form of this this figure, this visage, gliding across the top of the water. So at first they think it's a ghost and they cry out for fear. But right then, an amazing thing takes place before Jesus gets in the boat and calms the storm and their lives are spared. and Before you get to the end of the story, there's another little narrative. There's another little sequence of events that takes place and it's not in the Mark 6 passage. It's in the Matthew account And so flip over to Matthew 14 real quickly and I want you to notice that we have this account of how Peter decides I'm going to try to walk on water too. And so in Matthew chapter 14 starting with verse 28 Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. Can you imagine this conversation? Peter says, Lord, if that's really you, ask me to come out onto the water so I can walk on water. Jesus says, come on. Okay. Come on. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, Oh, you of little faith, and you know the end of the story. They finally, both of them, get back in the boat and the wind ceases and the storm is over. This is a really interesting little thing that takes place here between Peter and Jesus. And there's a couple of spiritual lessons to learn from this. I call this how to walk on water. Now, I'm not suggesting we go out and try to physically walk on water. If that was a miracle of God, don't attempt that. I'm not suggesting that. I'm using walking on water as merely a symbol of attempting to do something that's seemingly impossible. Some of you have been, God is working in your heart to do a work for God, and you say, I I can't do that. God, you know, I, I, I just can't do that. God seems to be prompting you and calling you to do some difficult, you know, task or area of service that's maybe a little bit above and beyond what you've ever done before, and you say, God, oh, God, I, I just can't do that. And so, four things I want you to know about how to walk on water. Number one, get rid of your fears. You got, see, Peter has to realize that's the Lord there. He has to recognize the presence of the Lord. You will never do anything great for God sitting still. You got to get rid of your fears. You have to put all your fears aside. Fear is what keeps Christians from serving the Lord. Fear is what keeps us all from witnessing. I mean, let's be honest fear keeps us from witnessing the way we should fear of new things is what keeps some churches from growing well I've seen that as a pastor over the years churches are dying you know what the last eight words of a dying church are we ain't never done it this way before fear the secret of overcoming our fears is to realize the presence of the Lord Jesus said to them, be of good cheer, it is I. You have to be aware of his presence. See, if you have the Lord's presence, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid at all. In the Great Commission, where we're told to be witnesses to the whole world, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things whatsoever commanded you. And lo, listen, lo, I am with you always. So the instruction to go out and witness is coupled with a tremendous, listen, it's coupled with a tremendous promise. I'm with you. I'm right there with you. Always, even to the end of the age. David the psalmist, even referring to death, Said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will, what? Fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Isaiah 41.10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, I will help you, I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. Joshua 1.9. God is speaking to Joshua. Joshua. He had just taken over after Moses died. You know, I don't know, but you, I would have hated to be the guy that had to follow Moses, wouldn't you? <laughs> oh, I can put myself in Joshua's shoes. I'd hate to have to follow Moses. You know what God said to Joshua? He said, Have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not dismayed, neither be thou dismayed. For I, the Lord your God, am with you wherever you go. Joshua you have the promise of my presence. You get rid of your fears when you acknowledge the presence of the Lord. Number 2, seek God's will. Seek God's will. Peter was often quite impulsive in his actions. You know that there's several illustrations of that all through the New Testament. He was one impulsive guy. He coined the phrase stick your foot in your mouth. You know, or at least he illustrated it. But not here. Here he actually asks the Lord for permission to try to walk on water. Did you catch that? He asks the Lord for permission. Lord, if it's you, bid me come out onto the water. And Jesus said, come. Jesus invited him. To come, And he did. He sought God's will and he obeyed God's will. You never go wrong when you ask the Lord to show you his will. You never go wrong. Number three, got to get out of the boat. Number one, get rid of your fears. This is how to walk on water. Get rid of your fears. Secondly, seek God's will. Number three, Get out of the boat. You see, there comes a point where you just plain have to get out of the boat. You have to take that step. You'll never do anything difficult for God sitting still. You'll never witness to your neighbor unless you cross the street and knock on his door. This is what faith is, taking that first big step. I could do a whole Bible study right now on people in the Bible that learned how to take the first great step of obedience. There's a lot of beautiful illustrations of that. But think of Peter. Get the picture. He's in a boat that's rocking because of a storm. The waves outside the boat are rolling from the wind. And he, he has to take this amazing step from the boat out onto the water. I want to tell you, folks, that's a step of faith. It's really a pretty amazing step of faith. We're so prone to want to stay in our own little comfort zone. I don't know about you, but I think that's that's so true, really, of all of it. You know, we want to stay in our own little comfort zone. We hesitate to try anything that's outside the box. So let me ask you this morning, what seemingly difficult, impossible thing is God prompting you to do? What seemingly difficult step is God asking you to take? Well, one thing, you're not going to accomplish anything good and anything great for God sitting still. You've got to get out of the boat. Number four, keep your eyes on the Lord. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Now, we often criticize Peter for his failure. But in fairness to him, let me share a few things. Can I defend Peter here? Because everybody only points to his failure. Poor guy. <laughs> he gets a bum rap, I think. But actually, let me, can I share some positive things here? First of all, he's the only disciple who even tried to walk on water. God bless people who try to serve God. Amen? Secondly, he is to be commended for wanting to imitate his Lord. I'm here to tell you that's a good thing to try to be like Jesus, don't you think? He sees what Jesus is doing, and he wants to imitate his Lord. He wants to be like Christ. That's always a good thing. Thirdly, he actually, for a brief amount of time, did walk on water. We forget that. We're so quick to emphasize the last part of Matthew 14, we forget the first part. He actually walked on water. But then you know the rest of the story. Unfortunately, he took his eyes off of Jesus. He saw the wind and the waves and he began to sink and he cries out and the Lord graciously grabs his arm, pulls him back up. Peter makes the mistake that so many of us make. He started looking around at circumstances around him. And he took his eyes off of Christ. One thing I can say for... Certainty with certainty. As a pastor for forty-four years, I've seen this so many times. This is what causes so many believers to go down in defeat. Is, in, they take their eyes off of Christ and they start looking at other people. And can I say that when you do that, people will disappoint you every time. I hope your faith is not anchored in people. Our faith needs to be anchored in the Lord, not other people. And so many Christians in the church, they they make that awful mistake and they take their eyes off of Jesus and they start looking at it. and once you start that you're going to begin to sink or they start looking at problems you don't need to be around them for more than five minutes and all of a sudden you realize it's all that consumes them is this problem and that problem and and they're so negative and so critical why they take their eyes off of Christ And they start looking at circumstances. And the moment you start looking around at circumstances, you're going to go down. The secret of spiritual success is to keep your eyes on Jesus. The songwriter said it best. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now back to our main outline, the fifth point, he will see me through. Verse 51, then he went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased. The same God who saw the Israelites through the Red Sea and Daniel through the lion's den and the three Hebrew children through the fiery furnace, he will see you through also. Listen, friend, the storm Will pass. There will be a time when it'll be over. The only question is, how are you going to behave until that day comes? The only question is, are you going to learn the lesson that God wants to teach you in the storm? That's the question. So while we're waiting for the storm to be over, Let me encourage you to do three things, and these are the last three in your notes. Number one, appreciate his prayers on your behalf. He's praying for you. And if he's praying for you to learn the lesson in the storm, then learn it. Number two, acknowledge his presence. He's right there with you. He has promised his presence. Listen, you can go through anything so long as Jesus is with you in the storm. When I was a little boy, I was probably only three years old, maybe two years old, a little toddler. My dad was a dairy farmer, and I'd go with him at night down to the barn, and I'd sit there and patiently wait while he milked all the cows and all, and all. One night there was a tremendous thunderstorm. It's the first time in my little life that I recall ever seeing lightning and hearing thunder. And dad said to me, he said, a storm is coming. Why don't you run back up to the house to mom and just go on up and be with her So I start, I leave the barn, I'm starting to walk back up to the farmhouse and all of a sudden lightning just splits the sky and a tremendous thunderclap. And here I am, just this little kid and I go running and screaming back to the barn. And I'm crying and trying to explain to dad what I saw because I'd never witnessed a thunderstorm before. (laughs) And he laughed gently and he said, well, wait here. When the, when the uh, chores were over, he turned out the lights in the barn and he grabbed my little hand in his great big, my dad had big hands. He was a dairy farmer. He was a strong man. And he reached down and he took my little hand in his big hand. And we walked hand in hand through the storm all the way back up to the house. And you know the amazing thing is, everything was the same in both cases. The storm was the same. Every the circumstance, the only thing that was different is that my dad was holding my hand. And that made all the difference in the world. And so whatever you're going through this morning... I want you to know that you need to acknowledge his presence. And third, appropriate his peace. The same Jesus who brought peace to the sea can bring peace to your heart if you just trust him. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, thank you for teaching us these awesome lessons from Mark chapter 6, and the account of the storm that the disciples were passing through. Thank you, God. You've taught us a number of very practical lessons here today, and we just want to thank you for it. Lord, help us. I pray that you would help us to identify exactly what the nature of this our storm is. We'll never have victory. We will never have a solution until we fully acknowledge what the problem is. So we need just to be honest right now with you. Help us to name our storm. Help us to be honest with you. and God, minister to us. Use this Bible study to encourage our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to tell you the story of a believer named Horatio Spafford. Horatio was a well-known lawyer and businessman in Chicago in the 1860s where he lived with his wife, Anna, and their five children. He had invested heavily in real estate in the Chicago area and had amassed a great deal of wealth. Life was good for the Spafford family, but in 1870, a series of events began that turned their world upside down. That year, Horatio and Anna's only son got sick with scarlet fever, and after countless visits from the doctor and countless treatments, he passed away at the age of four. Can't imagine losing a little child at the age of four. A year later, while the Spaffords were still grieving the loss of their son, the great Chicago fire broke out and consumed nearly all of Horatio's real estate investments. His entire life savings was gone. This disaster took a great toll on his family, and so Horatio decided to take his wife and four daughters on a holiday to England to help forget their troubles. Just before they set sail, a last minute business settlement forced Horatio to stay back. He decided to send his family ahead on the ship to England and would plan to join them a little while later. Several days after his family had departed, Horatio received devastating news. The steamship carrying his wife and daughters had been struck by an iron sailing vessel from England causing the ship to sink in only 12 minutes. 226 people drowned that day, the worst naval disaster in history until the sinking of the Titanic 40 years later. The next day, Horatio received a telegraph from Anna who had made it safely to England saying, survived alone. The Spafford's four daughters had drowned in the shipwreck. After receiving this news, Horatio boarded the next ship out of New York to join join his bereaved wife in England. During the voyage, the captain called Horatio to the bridge and told him that the place that they were now sailing was the very spot in which the ship carrying his wife and daughters had sunk. It was there while staring into the waters where his four daughters had perished that Horatio penned these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say. It is well. It is well with my soul. Let's stand and sing it, shall we? Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.